Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, what a blessing it is to be up here again preaching this sermon. And, uh, you know, I feel like I, I had an opportunity to practice it, and hopefully it's even better this time. Uh, you know, Ivy mentioned that she is a seven, and um, I couldn't disagree more because I'm an eight, and apparently eights are challengers. It's our thing. We challenge things. And here's the sad thing is that, you know, I was hanging out with Ivy and Eli and Yanni last night, and Ivy and Yanni are just convinced, oh, you're an eight. And I said, well, no, I'm not. No, I see that's just proof. It's like, it's a trap. You can't win no matter what you do. You're an eight. If you disagree, you're an eight. And if you agree, well, you're an eight. So I'm an eight. Uh, you know, I never disagree with anyone. I don't challenge anything. Um, and so <clears throat> it's kind of fun, right? But I, I do think there's probably some truth to that. And today I want to talk about what do we do when society challenges us. You know, I was thinking about how we talked about last time in the book of John, how we need to have that unity and that love as a family. You know, the question would be, what do we do when a brother or sister challenges or wrongs us? But Jesus, shortly after that, where he challenges them to love one another, he now turns their lens to the outside world and he says, so what are you going to do when these people come for you? You know, recent times have been immensely challenging. There's been the virus. There's been so many things going on. There's tension in the country. One brother predicted, I have no idea if he's right. That's the thing about the future. You never really know what's going to happen. He predicted that we were just entering into the first start of that division and tension that we've seen and that the next 10 years are going to be worse and worse. Now, again, that's just his opinion, but it made me wonder, what will we do if the hatred and the polarization and all the things that are going on in the world are turned on us. You know, they say that the, the nail that sticks up gets the hammer. And Christians, in bad times, we're called to stand out, which means we can quickly become a target. This thing is echoing. Here, is that better? I don't know. I didn't, it was bothering me. So, <laughs> uh, you know, so we can stand out and then we become a target. Like, look, the, look at those guys. What's wrong with them? They don't fight all the time, and they don't have all the problems we have. They love each other. There's something wrong with them. we got to go after them. Or they call out the things that we do that are evil. And so we got to go after them. we got to shut this down. And so Jesus, he teaches us that when we choose to be like him, when we choose to stand out because of our fearless love for the truth and for the gospel, we can find strength in him and overcome any opposition. And we will have the peace of knowing that we have fought the good fight and that we are with Jesus in doing that. Amen. So let's look here in John 15. Jesus says this. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. 
But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They have hated me without cause. You know, you think about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, listen, they will hate you at some point. You will face persecution. There will be challenges. The world will turn on you. And I think for the Christian church in America, we've, we've had a long period of relative peace with the authorities and other groups that say, hey, listen, you're free to worship however you want. Just leave us alone and pay your taxes and it's fine. And that's really how they treat it, right? For the most part. But it isn't that way everywhere. You know, we have brothers and sisters in China who aren't allowed to meet openly because the government does not allow our church. We have brothers and sisters who are directly threatened with jail. And there's other people who, just for having pictures of Jesus in the house, they said, listen, replace that with the premier Xi Jinping or go to jail. Because we don't like this Jesus guy. Why? Because Jesus is a threat to their establishment. But really when we think about it, it's like, what did Jesus do truly to deserve the level of hatred that he received? I mean, was he cruel and vicious and mean? Was he stirring up riots? I mean, he was doing none of those things. He, he healed people. He gave to the poor. He loved everyone. And somehow that inspired hatred. And Jesus says the reason is because you do not belong to the world. You're not like them, and that upsets them. And so we are called to be out of the world, out of this household where hatred and all that stuff is supposed to be normal and into a household where love is the norm. And for that reason, we stand out and we can become a target. Now, I don't know. I don't know that the United States government is going to suddenly start targeting us. I don't know if any of that's going to happen. But what will we do if it does? And not just the government. What if society in general just says, listen, you guys are the evil ones and we're coming for you. We don't like you. We're going to do everything we can to harm you. How are we going to respond? And so I want to look at an example from the life of Paul and some of the other brothers and sisters in the church in Ephesus. Okay, so in Acts 19, verse 23. It says, About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis is one of the Greek goddesses brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades, it's like a trades union, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So here we have a meeting of a bunch of craftsmen, right? They make stuff for the temple. And this temple in, in, Ephesus, in Ephesus was probably the biggest temple in the whole world. And it's destroyed now. But it was an absolutely beautiful piece of architecture, massive. It's considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. And they had in it a massive statue of Artemis, and people flocked from all over to worship Artemis there. And so these guys, they admit, yeah, we make a good income from this business. And not only that, they're threatening our idols. Right? They're saying that there's something wrong with our idol, our statue that we work so hard on, that represents our goddess. 
and our goddess will be robbed of her divine majesty. You know, it's fascinating that someone could say that about their god and still believe that that is somehow a god worthy of worship. Oh, you took away the divine majesty. How? If this is truly the great goddess Artemis of the Ephesians, what, how did we take her majesty? But that's, they didn't see any problem with that view of the world. And that's the case with all idols, right? They're actually vulnerable at all times to losing their abilities in the world because the only ability they have is to influence the hearts and minds of people. And that through sin. You know, I was thinking about my own life and recently some, some, a similar situation that happened for me where God exposed some sin and idolatry in my heart that had been growing. I'm not, I don't think it was quite full grown. It's not as if I was about to leave God or that I didn't love Him, but it was growing in my heart and it was like a, it was a little infection that just kept growing. It was this infection of greed or even covetousness, which the Bible calls idolatry twice. It says covetousness, which is idolatry. And so our society, right, we may say, oh, we have no statues. I mean, when's the last time you saw a statue of Artemis? You won't, unless you Google it, and it's a piece of art in a museum that everybody goes, oh, that's unique. Right? So we don't have those things, and yet our society is filled with covetousness. And so to say that we are not idolaters like those crazy Greeks, we've moved on. You know, I was saying yesterday in a lesson, I was saying, you know, my, my ancestors, they're from Norway, and they used to worship Thor and Odin, and I had this weird sort of like national pride, like, you know, but we destroyed those idols a thousand years ago. Like, did you really, though? Did you destroy all the idols in your society? Because covetousness is in every place in this country. It is everywhere. I mean, it's the banner that flies over the nation. It is idolatry. And so that had grown in my own heart, see, because because the president gave out those stimulus checks or whatever, and I was like, ooh, sweet, stimulus check. Like, oh, let's do something with this. Let's try to make it grow. Not necessarily a bad impulse, right? I'll provide for my family. It, I started out in a decent place. And as the investment grew, because it did, I started to become more and more consumed. I mean, the dollar signs were just flashing over my head all the time, like, oh, big money. And I was like, no way. Well, can I turn this into a million dollars? That's what I started to think. I was like, ah, I'll find a way. I'm going to do it. It's going to be awesome. And then I'll give it all to the church, except for the part that I want. <laughs> and so I just, it, it grew, it grew, where I was just becoming more and more covetous and obsessed. And I was checking the price of this asset like 15 times a day. I mean, it started out once, right? And then you're like, oh, twice. Maybe I'll just whip up my phone. Oh, wow, it's doing so well. And you just start to obsess. Yeah. And then I started to think to myself like something was off about that. Like, this is weird. I've been doing way too much thinking about this. And it was Sunday night, and I was thinking that to myself. Maybe I need to exit it. Maybe I need to sell everything and just take the money and run. We'll be done with this. But I was like, no, one more trade, because I know this is going to work. I was like, I know that this opportunity is golden. And so I, I spotted this other asset that I had a feeling was going to 10, 20 times in its value overnight. And uh, I was really trying hard to get access to it um, because of, here's the fascinating thing, it's very hard to access trades of this asset in the United States because of legal issues. Now, I'm not saying it's illegal to trade. I'm saying there are certain exchanges that are not allowed to list it. So I only had to go to these special exchanges. And it's like, oh, I got to go to the exchange. And uh, when I went to go do that, I was on Google. I searched the exchange. I'm like, sweet, okay, I'll go there. And the top ad was for the exchange. So I clicked on it. And it was a scam. It wasn't actually the exchange. It just looked the same. So when I entered in my password, they got all my information, and they stole all my money. Now, here's the thing. I wasn't wrong. 
it increased by 20 times within two days. But I didn't get anything. <laughs> Literally not a dime. I was like, well, in all my arrogance, the Lord said, all right, you know, I'm going to, you know, this guy's in sin. He's stealing from people, and that's his deal. But Grayson needs to humble out a little bit, so I'm about to snatch this away. You know, I'm just going to give him a little ad, and he's going to look like, like an idiot. Click on it. And it was gone. And so the next morning I woke up, I was like, I was still wrestling with it. Like, maybe I should just sell, you know, whatever. Because I didn't know that it was gone. Go on there, and it says zero balance. And I was like, what happened? Like, this must be a mistake. And I'm just typing like crazy, trying to figure it out, doing all this research, calling stuff. And nope, it's gone. It's stolen. Can't get it back. Government probably can't do anything about it because of the way it was done. And so all the money was gone. So I text my wife. I said, how am I going to tell Ivy that I lost all our money? Like, this is a lot of money. So I text her. I said, hey, I just want you to know, like, I made a mistake, got all our money stolen. And she was just like, yeah, I don't care. And I was like, what is your problem? <laughs> this is our money. You have to care as much as me. Don't you see? It's all the money. But I was also grateful. I was like, wow, okay, cool. So I don't have to be afraid right now. <laughs> But you want to know what the difference was that I was covetous and she was not. And so in my heart, it was such a big deal. Now, was it wrong that somebody stole from me? Of course it was wrong. But in my heart, I was so set on that being our future that I would make this grow and we would be golden. Yeah. We could pay off all our debts and do all this stuff. And it just, it, you never know. Yeah. Every idol is short-lived. Artemis's temple in Ephesus no longer exists, and it hasn't for a very long time, because she was an idol. And these people, they somehow seem to know that, even though they didn't, because they said, she's going to be robbed of her divine majesty. Well, she has, and nobody worships Artemis anymore. But they decided, right, so this is how they respond to all that. Their covetousness, their, their incomes are threatened, their idols are threatened, so they decide to get angry. It says, oops, sorry, wrong way. Oh, there we go. Okay, here we go. When they heard this, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. So think about Paul's response here, right? He's like, oh, look, they're here for church. Like, <laughs> it's time to preach. And everyone's like, they're going to kill you because they're furious. They're furious at you, especially. They really don't like you. And he's like, no, this is my chance. Right? And wiser has prevailed, and uh, he does not go out there. But you think about that zeal, right? That heart of like, wow, look at all these people gathered. They're in a theater. They have seats. It's the perfect chance. How would you respond in that situation? Where would your heart be? Would you be willing to stand up and preach the truth to these people? You know, this is honestly a very scary image because people do crazy things when they're in mobs like this, right? They do things that they wouldn't normally do. They become furious in a level that they can't even control themselves. And psychologists and sociologists, they've studied this, and we know that it's real, right? It's the mob mentality, this inability to do what's right when you're in a mob. And so the question is, right, but how does the world react to mobs like this? And we've seen it in recent times where people have felt like, wow, there's a mob coming for my life. What am I going to do? And you know what they do? They grab the weapons and they load up and they get ready to protect themselves. 
They get ready to protect themselves, and maybe they even form a counter mob. I've seen a few of those, you know, where some group of people's marching and some other group marches to meet them. It's like literally an army. It's the scary stuff. This is what people do. It's instinctual. We've got we to gotta do something in the exact same way that they're doing something. But when Jesus was confronted by a mob, right, before the court, he didn't even defend himself. Because he knew that he had a higher calling than making war on people who were lost in confusion and sin. You know, so Jesus said, could I not call 12 legions of angels at once? He's like, Peter, stop arming yourself to fight these people. Just let it happen. Because if I wanted to deal with this, I can. But this is not my purpose. It is not our purpose as Christians to fight mobs with guns and the weapons of the world. Paul's impulse was to preach. And I think that is a good impulse, although probably in this case somewhat unwise. But what would your impulse be? Would you imitate Jesus? But why were these people so incensed, right? With Jesus, it says they, they hated me without cause. Why did these people hate the way? That's what they called it, right? The way. Like, who are these people walking in this way? What's their problem? Why did they hate them so much? And I think it's quite obvious because they threatened their idols, ideologies, and incomes. And sometimes what we preach honestly should make people feel a little bit threatened depending on where they're at. You know, look at what Jesus says here. Oh, let's read this first, actually. Wait, what? Oh, let's skip. We'll go back to that. It says, Woe to you. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. You know, the reality is that Jesus' message was not nearly as popular as we like to think about it. Like, wow, Jesus, you know, the, the greatest preacher ever. Everybody wanted to hear him preach. You know, they actually really didn't like the guy. Because he challenged them straightforwardly and honestly that there needed to be real repentance. Remember when Jesus said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others? No, but I tell you, unless you too repent, you will all perish. Who wants to hear a message like that just on every day? Hey, Jesus, you know, I'm wondering what should I do? He's like, well, either repent or die. <laughs> oh, that's what I came here for. Thanks. Like, nobody does that. And so Jesus was not really that popular. And matter of fact, Jesus seems to make a deliberate effort when there was large crowds coming to him because he was a great preacher and he did great things. He actually tried to turn them back. So he would say his most challenging things when the most people were around. You know, one time I, so I'm not a very good Bible talk leader, honestly. I, I, I got to get better. But I remember one time in Duluth, I invited this guy, Nick. And it was our first Bible talk ever in the Duluth campus ministry. And I was all fired up, like, I hope there's going to be a bunch of people. And so Nick walks in, and I kid you not, this dude had eight women follow him in the door. And I was like, I don't know who any of you are. <laughs> like, who are these women? Like, and Nick's like, oh, it's all my friends. I was like, okay, sweet. And you know what I did? I went directly to Luke 14 and talked about counting the cost to follow Jesus, and they all left. <laughs> I was like, well, <laughs> that was a disaster. And yet, maybe it wasn't. Maybe I would have wasted a lot of time talking to people who had no room for the message. 
because who knows, you know, Nick was a handsome guy. That might have been the only reason they were there. And so I was like, okay, so I guess I imitated Jesus. It didn't feel so good. I lost my whole crowd. But I, I, I didn't feel guilty either because I said the word of God. So anyway, let's go back to the story. So they're furious, they're shouting, and it says the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people, welcome to mob mentality, did not even know why they were there. It's like, hey, everybody just get mad. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, so two hours of just shouting. Like, these people are out of their minds. This guy can't even, literally just by his appearance, they could tell he's a Jew, and they said, oh no, we're not listening to this guy. Let's drown him out. The city clerk, so finally somebody who they respect, steps up. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Look, here's a city clerk who's not even a Christian, who's like, guys, you have no reason to hate these people. You feel threatened because you're a little false god. I mean, he doesn't say this, but this is how I'm interpreting it. Your little false god is threatened, but everybody already knows about your god. So just move on, right? So he's actually quite a reasonable guy. And I think God used him to protect the church there. But what would have happened if the church said, all right, we're forming a counter mob, get all the Jews together, get the guns, let's put an end to this. It would have been all-out warfare. Matter of fact, I could tell you stories about historical riots. That's basically what happens. Two mobs meet and they go to war. But instead, the Christians were like, all right, we'll just hang out. And there was peace. Right? So we've got to be able to say unpopular things, even if it incites people to really dislike us. And then when that happens, we have to strive to not fight the battles in the way that they are fighting them, to not form mobs and get weapons and all these things. This is what it says in John 16. Jesus goes on to talk about this more. He says, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. 
about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. You know, Jesus says that if I go away, that's for your advantage because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, the world is filled with all kinds of sin. And sometimes I can feel like, or maybe you can feel like, it's my responsibility to make them feel the weight of their sin. Here's the reality. That is the Holy Spirit's job. Yeah. It is your responsibility to be a mouthpiece of the Word of God. When you preach it, people feel it. But if you don't say anything, they will not feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So it's not up to you, but you certainly do have a role that God has given you to proclaim His message in such a way that the weight of sin and righteousness and judgment is felt and leads to repentance. You know, what caused me to repent was a fear of the righteous judgment of God because of my wickedness. And that was even exposed just this last week. I've been a Christian for 10 years. And it was like, wow, you have been very covetous. Now, I know that God is graceful, but in order to really understand that, you have to feel the weight of the evil, or else grace is cheap and means nothing. Amen? And ultimately, Jesus says, the prince of this world now stands condemned. You know, Artemis was a princess of this world, and Satan is a prince. of the, he's, the, he's the dark spiritual force that rules over so many, that causes a spirit of confusion and disorder and violence and hatred. That's what he does. Satan incited that mob. He said, oh, I know who. That guy Demetrius, that's my guy. I'm going to get him to get everyone riled up, and then I'll send him after the Christians. <laughs> that's my plan. Not a bad plan, Satan. Like, not bad. But Jesus says, no, but you've already been condemned. Jesus sees through all these schemes, and we should too. And instead of resorting to, whoops, resorting to the tactics of the world, this is what we should do. In 2 Corinthians 4, and think about who says this. This is written by the Apostle Paul. The man who Jesus said, remember he said, anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. When Stephen was preaching to the Jews and they were stoning him to death for what he said, almost all of it just a direct quotation of the Old Testament. It's fascinating, right? It's their own book. Jesus said, or Paul was standing by and he was approving of it. Paul saw that as offering service to God. And yet Paul becomes the one who is now willing to stand on that truth. That is the power of the gospel. Amen. That a man who says, listen, I don't care if you kill those Christians because they're evil and they got it coming, is now one of the most famous Christians who ever lived. There is no religion like that besides ours. That's right. And so he says this, Paul says, rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. In other words, Paul is saying, yeah, I once knew about the secret and shameful ways of teaching to people. He says, we do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You know, a lot of times we can, we can confuse tact with passivity. We can say, I'm going to be respectful here. And therefore, that means I should be passive. But often in the scripture, what you see is people being respectfully, tactfully disagreeing. Uh, sorry, guys, Artemis is not the goddess. 
And I'm sorry that that makes you feel upset, but it's just not true. And I'm going to tell you that plainly. I'm not going to hide behind deceptions and kind words that I don't... You don't understand what I'm saying? There's just a way that we can dance around things. One brother said to me, clarity is kindness. And it's so true. Right? When somebody has been really direct and honest with you, and you're like, that is so right, and you still have that prideful reaction, but later on you come back and you're like, yeah, you were right. <laughs> like, I can't say anything to you. But if they had been unclear, you would have just stuck with your pride. You would have just said, yeah, well, that's your opinion. But when people are clear, it's a kindness to us. You know, I don't, I don't mean to uh, make my sin anyone else's fault because it was my sin. But if someone had come to me and said, Grayson, I've noticed you're being a little covetous. You need to repent. It would have helped me. It would have helped me. Maybe we wouldn't have lost all our money. Who knows? But the point is, it is kindness to be clear with people. And someone says, well, do you believe you've got to be a Christian? Yeah, I believe that. Can I show you why? Can I tell you about why I think that? Can I give you the story? Instead of saying, well, man, I, you know, I do that. I've done that. It's like, oh, yeah. Like, no, yeah, absolutely I believe that. And I'm going to be honest. You know, and Paul also says this. He says, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Remember, Jesus said the Spirit's the one who's going to convict the world. But the Spirit teaches us things that we can say. Explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. You know, you want to explain to someone the condition of their heart. You're far better to go to the Bible than to a psychologist. No offense, dear, but that book is not going to be nearly as helpful to me as the Bible. Labeling me as an eight, you know, as offensive as that is, and maybe has some accuracy in it, it's not as helpful as the Bible. Or another example that I, I'm plagiarizing this direct from another brother, he, he was talking about Brene Brown. She's famous for her book on vulnerability. And so it's a good book. I've read it. And yet the Bible speaks about that, and it calls it honesty and courage and humility. And so when we're able to go to the biblical resource, the Spirit-taught words, we now have the authority and backing of God. Or if someone said, and I'm not saying we can use the Bible however we want, what I'm saying is, when we teach the Bible plainly and truthfully and accurately, we now have the backing of Almighty God behind us. Instead of saying, well, Brene Brown said, it's like, well, who is Brene Brown? Just a human. But God has said, you must confess your sin and be honest and be vulnerable. And he never uses the word vulnerable, but still, that's what he says. And so now we know it's true and nobody can argue with that. What are you going to say? You're going to talk back to God? So Paul says, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Amen? So it equips us in that way. And Jesus closes out this speech about the persecution that the world is going to level against them. And he says, I have told you these things, isn't this fascinating, so that you may have peace. Wait a minute, that's not very... Is that supposed to be encouraging Jesus? So they're going to kill us and kick us out of the synagogue? They hate us? He says, no, in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus is like, no, I understand that there's trouble. But that's in this world. In me, there's peace. And take heart, I have overcome the world. So even though it seems that the world is more powerful than me when they're doing these things to you, the reality is I have overcome. And not only can you have peace in me, but someday there will be peace in the world. 
and so take heart. And Paul gives us some more advice. He says this, and we're going to close out with this, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who crave his appearing. If we stand firm in the word of God, if we say, listen, no matter what the crowd says, no matter how much they threaten us, we will not back down from these truths. We will endure hardship. We will do the work of someone who proclaims the gospel of Jesus. Then we can have peace in Christ and we can be blessed with a crown of righteousness at his appearing. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I would just thank you for this family. What a blessing it is to be together this morning. In your word, it challenges me in my heart to be a more honest, truthful, and devoted person. To love everyone with greater uh, courage. Lord, we thank you for just the blessing that it is to come together and that we can worship you this morning. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.